I think we may not prevent chronic migraine on everyone from leaving the workforce, but I do think it has a significant impact on the great majority of people with migraine because people with migraines, they want to feel understood. They want to work in a supportive work environment that would actually benefit everyone. That's Dr. Olivia Bagastadam, a board-certified neurologist who works as a headache specialist at the Hartford Healthcare Headache Center. A leading migraine researcher, Olivia is also the executive editor of the Pain Medicine Journal, a member of the International Headache Society, and author of the book, Headache, What Do I Do Now? Most recently, her research team published a study focused on a leading cause of presenteeism in the workplace, migraine. I'm Luann Heinen, and this is the Business Group on Health podcast, conversations with experts on the most relevant health and well-being issues facing employers. In this episode, Dr. Bagas Dadam and I discuss migraine as a major pain point for an estimated 15% of employees, causing productivity losses that typically go unmeasured. We also explore findings from her study focused on ways to help employees suffering from migraine gain more than 14 days of productivity annually. Hello, Dr. Bagastadam. Thank you so much for being here. And may I call you Olivia? Oh, yes, for sure. Um, good morning, Luan. Thank you so much for having me. I thought we might start with a patient perspective, if that's okay. Yeah, great idea. This was published in the Times of London just a few days ago by a member of Parliament of the UK named Dehanna Davison. And she wrote, in a nutshell, migraine is a debilitating whole body neurological condition that can have a wide range of symptoms, head pain, visual aura, nausea, light and sound sensitivity, dizziness, irritability, lack of ability to concentrate, and difficulty finding words. The latter especially unhelpful for a politician. On a bad head day, I'd worry that I'd be judged as weak or unreliable for canceling work commitments, but I also know that if I turned up and pushed through, I wouldn't be firing on even one cylinder, let alone all of them. And then she went on to explain that planning becomes very difficult because you don't know when a migraine attack will strike. And then in a resignation letter to the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, she said chronic migraine has made it impossible to do her job. So how do you react to this? I, I was really touched when I saw that article, really touched by your powerful story that is unfortunately the story of many, the general prevalence of migraine in the U.S. alone is 16%. Migraine affects more than 1 billion people in the world. Um, and yet, a lot of people never get to hear the first-hand experience and the significant impact this neurological disease is as on people work and, and work life. So I'm really happy that she so beautifully and openly shared a story on all the symptoms of the disease. And at the same time, I'm so grateful to be here with you today. I'm grateful for any opportunity to raise awareness on this because things has to change. We cannot have people have to leave the job function because of migraine, we need to be able to change workplaces to support people with migraine to keep them in the workplace. 
Now, isn't this kind of an extreme example having to leave her job? There are, I think one of the confusing things is there's such a broad range of symptoms and they're severe and chronic migraine and then there's more episodic. Is that right? Yes, yes. There's definitely a, a spectrum, but migraine directly impacts people, professional life for 80% of people with migraine. So there is a spectrum and having to leave a job may or may not be extreme because a lot of time people with migraine shun jobs or have to adapt their job. Um, in the migraine impact report, 55% of people with migraine reported that they had to change their career goal. So people may not leave that job directly, but people may need to work in a different way, adapt their job, change their goal. 39% of people um, with migraine have to miss work opportunities, promotions, additional earning potential. So migraine impacts a lot of people's professional lives. Yeah, more than half changing their career goals. That's really significant. Well, how typical is Dehenna Davison? She's a 30-year-old female. Is this a common demographic for migraine? Yes. So migraine uh, is common, but migraine peaks during people's most productive years of their life. So it has a huge impact on people's productivity. The general population prevalence is about 16%, but it's 30% for women in the 30s. So definitely um, she's within the demographic of the highest prevalence. And then I don't know so much about being a minister, obviously, but the unpredictability of the attack, the symptoms of migraine make it very difficult to attend work meetings, social events, to give speeches. Um, so I can see how her job was very difficult to do with chronic migraine. Yeah, it, it's sad. 30 years old and a, and a, a rising star in the Conservative Party um, of Britain, yeah. Well, why have we been slow to recognize migraine as a disease? Yeah, because it seems invisible to... A lot of people for a lot of different reasons. First, there is no specific overt symptom. You, you cannot just see someone and guess from seeing them that they have migraine. Migraine is also extremely isolating because when people have a migraine attack, all they want to do is to be left alone, stay in a dark room with as little noise and smell as possible. So people may not actually see people during a full-blown migraine attack. Then in the workplace, most of migraine-related productivity loss is due to presenteeism. So people show up to work, they push through. So people may not pick up that they're not productive as they normally would because of all the symptoms of migraine. And for employers too, migraine is mostly underdiagnosed and undermanaged. At an IT company in Asia, 73% of people who screen positive for migraine that never consulted for migraine and looking at commercial insurance, healthcare book of businesses, the claim-based prevalence of headaches and migraine is much lower than the actual prevalence in the population. And then there's a lot of stigma against uh, the disease too. 
Yeah. So not showing up in claims data, they're not showing up in ERs and physician offices so much. And then, yeah, they're home trying to feel better in a dark room. The Atlantic recently published an article by another migraine sufferer titled, It's the Best Time in History to Have a Migraine, followed by the tagline, So Why Doesn't It Feel That Way? And I gather there are more options for treatment now with fewer side effects, yet no magic bullet. Can you give an overview of drug and non-drug treatments? Yeah, so everyone with migraine needs to have access to acute treatment. So that's treatment people take as needed during a migraine attack to try to return to function, decrease the severity, um, intensity, duration of the attack. So usually we try to give people different acute treatment options based on the severity of the attack, the timing and the circumstances. If someone is at work, they may want um, medication with least possible side effect that enables them to return to function. But if people are at home, they can um, they may want to try a medication that may have more side effect, but try to kill uh, the migraine attack. And then for people who have disabling migraine attacks, this preventive treatment, so treatment that are taken on a regular basis to decrease the frequency, severity, duration of the disease. Kind of recently, I mean, starting on uh, 2018, we have had more migraine-specific pharmacological treatment on the market. And that's positive to help people with migraine in terms of treatment. But it also shows this is a disease. It's crazy. I still have to say that. But we have talked about it, how it's under-recognized. We are understanding more and more about the disease of migraine and its pathophysiology. And because of this increased understanding, there's been new migraine-specific treatment people can take. Olivia, how long does a typical migraine attack take, including any pre- and post-symptoms? Yes, so a migraine attack can actually be very long. It can last several days, like three or four days for some people. There's three to four phases of a migraine attack. About a third of people have phase one that can last up to two days and has a lot of symptoms such as fatigue, repetitive yawning, difficulty concentrating, mood changes, increased urination, food cravings, sensitivity to lights, sounds, and neck stiffness. Then phase two, about a third of people have phase two, and that's transient neurological symptoms. The most common one is vision changes with shiny, scintillating spots in the vision. And then the third phase is the head pain phase, the most commonly known one with severe throbbing, head pain, with light, noise sensitivity, nausea, vomiting for some people. And the last phase that can happen in about two-thirds of people and last up to two days is what is commonly referred uh, by some people as a migraine hangover because it's a hangover feeling even if people didn't drink any alcohol. And people can have fatigue, difficulty concentrating, neck stiffness. What does the provider landscape look like? Where do people currently get headache care and how optimal is that? Yeah, so 
it's it's not equal in all the states and all the geographical distribution and uh, we have tried advocacy efforts to try to change that and people are, are working on it but also the different professional organizations who are trying to provide increasing education to primary care to make sure everyone who goes to primary care can actually at least go through the first step of headache disease diagnosis and management. But usually most people first go to the primary care um, provider or family medicine physician and get the first steps of diagnosis and management. Then people can get referred to neurology and then um, headache specialists. So usually as a headache specialist, we usually see people with chronic migraine who have tried many different medications before getting to us. And there are, I think I read, correct me if I'm wrong, 560 headache specialists in the U.S. and 39 million migraine sufferers. There's definitely a, a gap in the workforce. And I, I think that's why it's also important to try to be creative. Clearly, we're not meeting the me needs with um, headache specialist clinics. So can we do programs like workplace education and management program to help employees in the workplace? And that's also why there's an increasing number of programs to educate the providers or healthcare professionals that patients first meet when they seek care for headache. Yeah. And let's go there and talk about migraine and work. First, is it any better outside the U.S. in terms of care for migraine? No, no, (laughs) not really. I mean, it's a huge topic because every country is different. It's fascinating. But even in the US, we have strict criteria for certified headache specialists. Also, countries with a, a lot of headache specialists, if you look at the data, but people can be self proclaimed headache mm-hmm. specialists. Mm-hmm. So, in general, no. The time to access, time to getting medication is unfortunately very long for a lot of people. Okay. So, Migraine and work. We know from your work, among others, that migraine is a leading cause of disability worldwide uh, and a leading cause of presenteeism, meaning people are at work but not fully productive. So when we understand it's a disabling condition that reduces productivity significantly, it's hard to understand why migraine isn't something on every company's radar. Yeah, and I think it goes back to what we discussed about it being invisible and about the stigma. And also, even at least for some of the employers I, I've talked to and programs I've seen, there's a lot of well-being programs, but sometimes not too many disease-specific employee programs. Well, and there would have to be a lot of disease-specific employee programs to address really the range of chronic conditions that impact employees and their families who work. Let's talk first about the survey data, though. Your Harvard Business Review article cited a survey of almost 200,000 employers and found that only 22% 
thought migraine was a serious enough condition to warrant staying home from work. So let's talk about why that's the case. We've already talked about the claims data, that it's it's not that visible. Some other misconceptions or challenges might be there's a lack of absence data captured by many employers. They just don't know for their exempt or salaried population. They don't know absence and they're not measuring presenteeism. Yeah. In the U.S., for example, the FMLA, some employers don't even ask the specific disease for which or record um, FMLA is being asked. So sometimes it's just recorded as brain condition. So people don't know. And then uh, a large proportion of people with migraine do not disclose that absence because of migraine out of fear because of all the stigma against migraine. Yeah, that it's people have a headache, they're malingering. Yeah, uh, yeah. in another um, survey of a U.S. representative sample of people without, they think that about a third of people with migraine exaggerate the symptoms. They think that people with migraine cause the disease by their own unhealthy behavior, that uh, people with migraine make things difficult for their coworkers, they use migraine as an excuse, so people with migraine do not feel comfortable disclosing that they have migraine. And that's from the data, but I see it in day-to-day uh, practice that some patients, when they ask me to fill forms or write letters, they want me to be as vague as possible and not mention migraine. Ah, that's interesting. Well, pivoting to some more positive news, you... In an effort to increase awareness and understanding of migraine's impact at work, you developed a headache education and evaluation program that was implemented at Fujitsu. You mentioned this work earlier, a Japanese company that provides IT services worldwide. And stunningly, over 72,000 Fujitsu employees participated Yes, that was a group effort, you know, <laughs> not just me. And that came as a succession. There has been in the world several workplace headache education program and workplace headache education management program. But the Fujitsu headache project is the first large scale headache education and management program in the workplace. And Fujitsu did a, a lot of really good things. So this came as a second health promotion campaign after they did a health promotion campaign on cancer. So I think the supervisors and employees were used to participating in health promotion campaign because that's a second disease-specific one. And I, I know we may need to have a lot of disease-specific uh, health promotion campaign, but at least targeting things like cancer, cardiovascular disease, headache, chronic pain, I think would go a long way. And then there were headache education modules for all the employees, but also one module that was mandatory for supervisors. So there were really a top-down approach involving the supervisors and really good promotion of the program to all the employees through email, newsletter, at touch points with 
supervisors. So that education program was offered to all the employees based in Japan. So more than 73,091% completed the education part of the program, which is wonderful because just educating the entire employee population can help make things better for people with migraine. What would you say was learned from this study? Yeah, so 73% of people increase the understanding of headache disorders. And those who say the program didn't increase the understanding said because they already understood the disease. So highly successful. 83% of people without a headache said they would change their attitude toward colleagues with headache disorders. So really, it's crucial to have a large-scale workplace education to every supervisor and employee. When people with migraine are asked what is one thing that would um, help them, like what is one change in the workplace that would help them, the first thing that come up is raise awareness, increase understanding. We can go a long way by just, in quote, um, implementing workplace headache education program. And that helps break down stigma, raise awareness, increase understanding, uh, decrease workplace, workplace conflict, uh, improve workplace re- relationships between colleagues, and then uh, improve diagnosis and management. Because then the employees who are interested could actually have a virtual visit with a brilliant headache specialist based in Japan and looking at people with moderate to severe headache who participated in the program. This program increased productivity by 1.2 days of absences and 14 days of presentism per employee with moderate to severe headache per year. So it's a 32-fold positive return on investment. So looking at the Fujitsu headache project, I think it's a no-brainer that um, such a program is productive for everyone. So I kind of love that the first result you cited was that more than 80% of people without headaches changed their attitude, and you think that is extremely helpful to those who are struggling with migraine. Yeah. And then second, you said uh, about 14 days per year of full productivity gained per employee with I think moderate to severe headache, and then annual productivity savings. And I saw in your paper that that was about $4,500 per employee per year. Does that productivity saving take into account cost to implement the program? No. So that's why, so the, um, the, and it's also based on the salary of people, right? We looked at the salary of people in Japan. But so that's a productivity gain. To calculate the return on investment, then we included the cost of the program to Fujitsu. Ah, and it was a positive ROI. Yes, 32-fold, yes. 32-fold, mm-hmm. $32 gain per dollar of investment yeah. or yen. Yeah, that's why I usually say the number of days saved and the 
a return on investment because the salaries and everything else is different in every country, yeah. Well, so is it reasonable to think that a program like this could prevent migraine from becoming a disabling condition leading to employee departures, disability claims, medical leaves? I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, prevent is a, a big word. I, I think it's like with a newer migraine-specific medication, no matter how hard we try, migraine is different from everyone. And then there's still people with severe chronic migraine despite all the new treatments. So I think we may not prevent chronic migraine on everyone from leaving the workforce, but I do think it has a significant impact on the great majority of people with migraine because people with migraines they want to feel understood they want to work in a supportive work environment that would actually benefit everyone because a migraine friendly work environment is good for everyone and then um, when asking those surveys a third thing that came up was a flexible work environment but if at least people are aware and um, that's actually helping reduce the stigma. And stigma, internalized stigma, is independently associated with decreased productivity too. So if we break down the stigma, you would expect that it helps increase productivity. Yeah, a good point. Well, can you elaborate on, on the migraine-friendly work environment, both physical environment and you've already touched on the social environment, but anything we haven't discussed there? Yeah, so positive factors associated with uh, migraine-related productivity is supportive work environment, we mentioned it, sense of autonomy, job satisfaction, and physical adaptation. So in terms of lighting, try to avoid the bright fluorescent overhead lights, but try more natural lighting, sun-free area, quiet areas, access to water and restroom, good air quality, good ergonomic setup while working, and then try to avoid the negative uh, factors. So really high workload, unnecessary stress in the work environment. Shift work is really difficult for people with migraine. And then the number of social interactions during the day. So interacting with more than 10 people during the day when you have a migraine attack is really difficult. So sometimes just having the flexibility of on one day of a migraine attack, trying to work on certain tasks of your job that is that are less difficult, and then saving the social interaction for a day when people feel better. Um, well, and then what about migraine triggers? Do they really exist? I know that's a little bit controversial. So a migraine attack has different phases. The first phase of the migraine attack, we call it the prodrome. So before the head pain phase, people can have different symptoms, which we call the prodrome, but people can have food cravings, for example. So then people crave chocolate, and it's not that chocolate trigger the migraine attack is that the migraine attack started and made people crave chocolate. So it's a, a little bit tricky sometimes to differentiate triggers versus prodrome. And as some of the workplace factors triggers or worsening factors of the migraine, I try to not get too stuck on 
triggers because sometimes we don't know. It's extremely hard to also pinpoint triggers because migraine is a disease that makes your brain hypersensitive to things. So things build up and then reach the threshold, but sometimes it's not clear. Like, was it the weather change plus hormone variations plus lighting of the environment? It's just so hard to pinpoint. And migraine is already such a difficult disease to deal with. I don't want to increase stress of people trying to keep these very intense diaries to pinpoint the specific triggers. And hard to predict. I mean, you know, the impact of what barometric pressure and, you know, hormones and the construction pounding next door. Yeah, hard to hard to sort it all out. Well, how else can employers support? We've talked about manager and peer education and awareness. And then on the benefits and uh, coverage front, are there any thoughts or recommendations there? Yeah, so some places too um, have ergonomics uh, help or ergonomics evaluation. So I think that helps with migraine, but that helps with a lot of um, other chronic pain. From a benefit standpoint, making sure that the migraine medications are on the formulary and covered by the um, health insurance plan of the employer. What gives you optimism about the future? So optimism is that we, our understanding of the pathophysiology of migraine keeps increasing, so that will lead to more treatment. The optimism, too, is that um, there were just the International Headache Congress in Seoul where a large number of headache specialists from all over the world met, and there's really a recognition from the international headache society and uh, its members that we need to work continue to work together and try to make a positive change in the world so it's not just in quotes focusing on the us but really collaborating across the globe and learning what ideas are working in one country versus another country and trying to advance as a team to improve education, access to care, and decrease stigma all around the world. So the increased international collaboration makes me really optimistic too. Can you give us just a little bit of information about your background? You were born in Belgium, educated in France, then what? Yeah, then uh, I moved to the U.S. for college, uh, studied mathematics and biology and then went to medical school, then neurology residency, and then a headache fellowship. So there is actual medical training to become a headache specialist. Um, And I love seeing patients and being in the clinic, but I, I really think that we have to think outside of the walls of the clinic to make sure we find people with headache diseases where they are to make sure the largest number of people get diagnosed and get access to care and treatment. 100%. I love that philosophy. Bring healthcare to the people. Right. So in the US, the idea was trying to focus on the workplaces. We'll try to do more programs for schools, but then when I was talking with headache specialists from Africa, too, a lot of 
people in Africa don't even see a doctor for the neurological diseases, including migraine. So how can we go and do outreach to community workers, to different people in the community to try to educate about headache diseases? Because clearly if we only, only in a, in a sense, treat people who are able to show up to the headache specialist clinic, we are missing a lot of people. I appreciate your vision, your commitment and enthusiasm for this subject. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I've been speaking with Dr. Olivia Bagastadam about how attitudes are evolving to understand migraine as a neurological disorder, along with what employers can do to optimize their physical and social environments to support employees at risk. To find a certified headache specialist near you, visit the American Migraine Foundation's website and use their Find a Doctor tool. I'm Luann Heinen, and this podcast is produced by Business Group on Health with Connected Social Media. If you liked the conversation, please rate us and leave a review.